Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. Title of the message is When Mercy and Justice Meet. When Mercy and Justice Meet. John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. If you will look at your Bible carefully, regardless of what translation you happen to be reading from, you will find it is probably marked beginning with verse 53 of chapter 7 with a bracket or possibly a double bracket. It may have some other type of notation and it will extend from verse 53 to chapter 8 verse 11. And in those brackets, in that notation, uh, again, whatever translation you happen to be reading from, uh, that is set apart. There may be a note explaining something to the effect that says this portion of the text is not in the oldest manuscripts. What does that mean? It is not my intent to divert our attention away from the focus of what we're going to do today, but I think this is a good teaching opportunity for just a brief moment to help us all to understand the nature of the Bible that we hold so dear. You understand that the King James Version, the most popular, the most prolific English translation of the Bible was translated in 1601. That's a long time ago. And the translators had at their disposal very limited resources using the best manuscripts that they had at the time. They did an amazing job of conveying the Word of God in a way that was finally in the language of so many who previously had not had access to it. However, since that time, especially in the modern era, we have translations that are born out of ancient texts that are hundreds and in some cases thousands of years older uh, or a thousand years older than that which was available to the translators of the King James. The problem is that people are so ingrained with the King James, especially if you are 50 years old or older, that any alteration change or even updating of the language seems almost to be wrong. I don't want you to, I don't want you to feel that way. I, I don't want you to think that way uh, because it's not correct. Um, it, it is, it's an association that is strong and I, I want you to maintain your strong commitment to the Word of God and to its authority and inerrancy because we believe and hold to both. But I want you also to understand that when you're reading an ancient text, even the King James is English and it wasn't written in English. It was written in Greek or Aramaic or Hebrew. And, and those are all languages that most of us have absolutely no familiarity with at all. You already know the difficulty of talking to someone who has a regional dialect of the same language and how different it can be, even the meaning of words. Um, I have my Siri set to a British woman. Why? Because I like the way she sounds. She sounds smarter than the American Siri 
She isn't. They're both dumb. But, but nonetheless, it sounds smarter. Those differences in the meaning of words, even words that we look at in English today and how they reflect a meaning in the current vernacular that is completely different than 60 years ago, and yet it's the same word. If all of that is true in just regular everyday stuff, how is it not true in the scripture translations as well? It is. So when we go back to the ancient text, to the oldest text, to the Greek text, which, by the way, King James had very limited access to, the Greek texts do not have this story in them. Now, at least they don't have it where it's located here. Some of them have it later in John. Some of them have it earlier in John. Some of them have it in Luke. In fact, in two different places in Luke. And the reality is that the language and the structure and even some of the theme of this passage probably fits better with what we would expect to read from Luke. But along the way, after about the 4th century in the Western text, this passage started to appear in manuscripts that were being copied and translated and passed on. As a result, it became a part of the translation of the King James, and every English translation since has continued to include it. Not all of them have it listed, bracketed, the way the ESV does. Some of them footnote it and don't include it in the actual text. But every scholar that I rely upon and every... Every commentary that I regularly turn to for insight in what I am preaching will say that while this may be a text that is somewhat out of context, it nonetheless is absolutely authoritative and that it actually happened and Jesus spoke these words. So what does all that mean? Well, when you start fiddling with the Bible like this, it makes everybody nervous, and rightfully so. I want you to be on guard all the time regarding your commitment to Scripture, because I guarantee you I am. But at the same time, rather than looking at this as something that is confusing, think about it like this. Over all of the years of translations and copying that has been done, Now thousands, centuries, including the Old Testament, we can now go back and as we discover things like the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Qumran Scrolls, all the different things that are so ancient and so close to originals, what do we find? We find that the text in those passages is identical to the one we have today, which validates the reality that God preserves and protects his word. Don't doubt it. In fact, if anything, let this be something that adds to the strength of your conviction. Because that's what it's done for me. All right. The story of the woman caught in adultery is a magnificent example of Jesus dealing with his critics on the one hand, but also at the same time providing compassion to someone in need on the other hand. 
It is a story in which anyone that is burdened by sin and guilt can find consolation and yet recognize that the moral standards of God are not diminished when we offer mercy. When mercy and justice meet, what we see is the beautiful presentation of the righteousness of God brought to bear to bring healing, cleansing, and hope in the life of all of us as sinners. Verses 1 through 6 have this to say. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, but early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. The first thing that we see is the exposure of an evil conspiracy. This is an evil conspiracy. The Pharisees and scribes come together. In fact, by the way, this is one of the reasons they think this belongs in Luke is because John never uses scribes, ever. And, and so, but Luke does it all the time. Uh, is, that, is that enough? Does it matter to you whether Luke wrote it or whether John wrote it? It doesn't to me. Uh, I look at both of them as being perfectly valid uh, and rely heavily upon them. Uh, the scribes and the Pharisees come together. These leaders, religious leaders, who have already expressed their opposition to Jesus, have already attempted to arrest Jesus, have already made it clear that they want to kill Jesus, now are looking for a way to turn the tide of public opinion. And so if they can capture him in something that will be contradictory or conflicted with what he said before, then they will have just cause either to arrest him themselves or to have him arrested by the Roman authorities for sedition. And so all of this is very clearly revealed in the way the story is told and the way it unfolds. The heinousness of this is not simply in the fact that they are using this woman who has been caught in a sinful act, and I don't think there's any question that she was, uh, that she has been caught in a sinful act. They're using it not in order to redeem her or restore her or to even prevent her from the first place of doing this, but rather to use her as a pawn or tool for their own personal agenda. This is awful. Jesus is teaching the people. He has brought them together. They keep coming to him. It shows us not only that his popularity continues to grow, but it also shows us that the means by which he is transforming the culture around him is through the teaching of the word of God. He continues to proclaim truth. We simply cannot overstate the value and importance of clear Distinctive biblical proclamation. By the way, I gave up two first round draft picks to get him. (laughs) You're mine, brother. You stay in here. I traded him to the Methodist Church, by the way. Uh, I don't have 
Chris here to delete stuff from my recordings, do I? (laughs) Jesus is teaching. He's drawing people. People are coming to him. The scribes and Pharisees bring this woman and they place her in the midst in front of Jesus, but also in front of those who are gathered for his teaching. They are doing it in order to create a public forum. While there's no question of her guilt, there is a question of her punishment. That is true of all of us. There is no question of my guilt or yours. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The question is about punishment. And it is only by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ and the finished work of the cross that we are not punished. We have life. It is life rising out of death, his death. They cite the law of Moses. pointing out that it requires she be stoned. And then they turn to Jesus and say, so what do you have to say about it? The whole scene is an obvious plot. It's designed to test Jesus publicly. If he says she should be stoned, it's going to conflict with the grace and mercy and the teachings that he has offered, as well as the acts that he has performed in order to restore, heal, and deliver people. If he says that she is If she is to be set free, then he is going to be in clear violation of the teaching of the law of Moses, which gives them every right then to arrest him as a teacher for violating the word of God. Several things do emerge, though, as we see the immediate scene. First of all, where is the man that was with her? Mosaic law also requires not only in the stoning of one caught in adultery, but of both. And so where did he go? Did he get away? Uh, Was he a plant to begin with, having seduced this woman for this purpose? I don't know. All of it is speculative. There's not any way to know. But it is something that shouldn't go unnoticed, that the double standard here is on full display, and that this woman is being treated as nothing more than property to be used for an evil purpose to undermine truth. It's also interesting to be, to be noteworthy that stoning had not been practiced in Israel for years and could not be done without approval from Roman authorities. As a result, in cases such as this, they had turned not from Mosaic punishment but to divorce, uh, which Jesus had much to say about as well. It is reprehensible to use another person as a pawn for political agendas. It is unthinkable to use the word of God as a tool for evil. And yet that's what's happening. It isn't the last time it will ever happen. It has happened throughout the years. And even to this day, we oftentimes hear or even find ourselves kind of caught up in some sort of argument where we become more of the aggressor, taking a higher moral ground, using the Bible to justify it, while at the same time setting aside compassion and love and grace. It is in this sort of mindset that we often find pride rising to the surface to the point that we all but forget that we too are sinners saved by grace. It is a difficult thing 
to walk the fine line between righteousness and mercy. And yet, without it, everything that we do ends up representing something other than Jesus. We must seek truth. Not only do we see an evil conspiracy, but we see Christ's divine sovereignty. Look at the latter part of verse 6 through verse 9. It says, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. But they continued to ask him and continued to badger him. So instead of falling into the trap of answering them, Jesus stooped down. He used his finger to write in the dust or draw in the dust. There's no way to know what he wrote. It doesn't say. But it has not prevented many people from speculating. Some have suggested various passages of Scripture that he may have wrote. Some have suggested maybe the list of the sins of those who had brought the woman there in the first place. Some have suggested that maybe his defense was being hashed out in advance, much like Roman judges would do before they spoke it, they would write it. Maybe that's what he was doing. I don't think that there's any way to know one way or the other, and so speculation is is a waste of time. What can we know? Here's what we can know. Rather than giving an immediate response, he stoops down, almost in a position of humility, and he pauses. Sometimes, sometimes it's best to allow evil to go on railing. And that's what they did. They kept shouting, they kept railing, they kept going on and on and on. Jesus, seemingly impervious to all of this, allows it to go on. Everybody that is gathered there is hearing it. He's letting them show themselves and overstep their boundaries so that they are going to be in a position where they're not going to like it very soon. But maybe it is also one of those moments where it gives an opportunity for all of us to consider greater clarity. Because what we see is a bunch of angry people who are wanting to kill Jesus. And what we see over here is a woman who has committed a terrible sin, yes. And now is broken and in shame and has become nothing more than a commodity to be used, killed, and disposed of. When we get so caught up in these evil agendas, we don't often pause long enough to realize that to continue on in this way may lead us down the wrong path and may do so while we continue to quote Bible verses or while we continue to hold some sort of moral ground by comparing ourselves to someone else. All it does is mask the reality that while her sin was adultery and everybody knew it, their sin was far greater than anyone knew. It's just not on public display. Jesus is letting all of that settle. And he draws on the ground. But notice what he does. Finally, he stood up. It says, as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And then at once he bent down and wrote on the ground. 
Jesus finally stands up to announce his verdict. The act of standing shows his authority. And the verdict that he gives shows his sovereignty. He knows and he alone possesses the power. How often have we tried to assert our own will above that of God? How often have we tried to to impress or to press our own agenda, even in the face of God's clear leadership or his stated word? How many times have we tried to justify our intentions by rejecting compassion? Jesus stood up and announced his verdict and showed that he was in authority and everyone there knew it. He was not overgeneralizing the consequences of this woman's sin, but rather was disrupting the self-righteous judgment of the Pharisees. This wasn't about the woman. This was about the scribes and Pharisees. This wasn't about the sinfulness that she had committed. This was about the truth of the gospel. In one simple statement, Jesus is able to silence his critic and save the life of the woman. Only one sent from God can accuse the accusers. It is a beautiful statement, and it is one that has been used many times over and is familiar to most. And yet at the same time, there is a great deal here. We tend to focus on the woman and we use sometimes what Jesus said to her uh, accusers as a way to get away from our own sin. You can't accuse me because you're a sinner too. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus isn't dismissing or diminishing her sin. He isn't even speaking to her. In fact, he hasn't turned to her or looked at her once. His exchange has been between him and the Pharisees. And everything that is taking place is taking place as he focuses attention on them. When he makes the statement, he does so in order to draw their attention away from their agenda and back to their own hearts. And while I do not believe that any of these Pharisees or scribes give indication of a conversion, I do believe that in the moment that he spoke, the Spirit was so powerful among them that they became intimately aware of their own shortcomings. And because there was no truth in them at that moment, all they could do is run and hide. The only other option would be to confess and repent, and they were not ready to do that. What do we see last? We see redemptive mercy. Redemptive mercy. In verses 10 and 11, oh, let me me wrap up the previous one. I didn't finish what I was starting. Verse 8, it says, Once more he bent down and wrote on the ground, and when they heard it, they went away one by one, Beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone and the woman standing before him. So the stage is set for verses 10 and 11. Uh, The Pharisees and scribes have left. The people who were gathered to hear his teaching remain. 
And now it says Jesus stood up in verse 10. And he said to him, said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Jesus now looks at the woman directly. He addresses her directly. And he asks her two questions. First, where are they? Where are they? They're gone. Was it because Jesus didn't know they were gone and he was really interested in where they'd went? I don't think so. I don't think that he asked the question in order to gain information about the whereabouts of his accusers. I think he asked the question to give a fuller awareness to her, but also to all of those who are there who have heard this exchange. They have heard the exchange between Jesus and the religious leaders who have contradicted everything that they have said and now have questioned not only what Jesus is teaching, but who he is. And now by asking this question, everybody gets to answer. They're not here. What about someone else who's going to take up the case? Has anyone else accused you? No one. What is he saying? He's saying there are no formal charges against her anymore. No one else is bringing a case against her. No one else is even suggesting that she be stoned or otherwise. All of that is now gone. I want you to think about that in light of the way things would go without the grace of Jesus Christ. You and I come to the end of our lives and we stand before the throne of God, the great judge of all things. And he says, so what do you have to say for yourself? I messed up, God. A lot. Like every day, all the time. And I have nothing to offer other than to maybe shift the blame to someone else or maybe I can explain it away by saying that it was because of the environment or the other people that were a part of my life or, or maybe I can say that the circumstances under which I was living at the time, that's what led me to this sort of lifestyle and I, I came away from this, this experience. I knew it was wrong, but yet I couldn't change it or I was just too powerless all of the excuses are going to sound just like that. They're going to sound like excuses. We stand before the judge. We have no hope. We have nothing to offer and we have no explanation. But in that moment, Jesus steps forward. And he said, my blood has atoned for his sin. And my righteousness is made real over this person. And the father says, welcome home, dear child. Jesus stands up. He doesn't excuse her sin. He doesn't ignore her sin. But her conspirators are gone and the charges are no longer before them. No official verdict has been reached. So Jesus responds with, neither do I condemn you. It was not simply a statement of acquittal or non-condemnation. It was, in fact, an act of divine forgiveness. It was an expression of grace. 
It was the lifting of the burden of shame and guilt. Knowing that the day would come within just a few weeks when that shame and guilt would be borne to the cross where he would die. Paying the penalty for it once and for all. But just as his mercy and grace was given, there is also a purpose in redemption that goes beyond just a means to excuse our sin. Jesus says to her, not only do I not condemn you, but he says, go, sin no more. He not only heals her past He transforms her future. Redemption doesn't just take care of the problems that have piled up because of our unfaithfulness. Redemption transforms the heart and the mind and the body of the believer so that we become someone new. So that we stand in the full awareness of the gift of grace Believing with absolute certainty God's word when it says, There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He didn't just dismiss her sin. He took it away and sent her on a life of righteousness. Jesus cared about the woman more than he cared about public perception. He cared more about the sinner than he did for the supposed righteous among them. He cared more about her future and the transformation that he alone could bring than he did about her past and her failures. In her sin. Not only does he forgive her, but he changes her. He doesn't give her a license to keep sinning, he gives her a solid reason to stop. (laughs) Believers must never use the Word of God as a tool to manipulate others for their own advancement. It's not why it was given. We proclaim the gospel for salvation, not condemnation. This is not about what we're against. It is about what we are for. We are for Jesus. The true purpose of the church is to call people from sinlessness, sinfulness to a life of faithfulness. That's why we're here. Additionally, people must never be treated as things to be used or looked down upon, but rather those for whom Christ died to redeem. Jesus can offer forgiveness and transformation because he took the sins that we committed upon himself at the cross. He died to pay the penalty of our sins so that by believing in him, we are not condemned. The righteous judgment of God and justice of God is complete in the death of Jesus. And the hope of redemption is realized through the resurrection of Jesus. He knows your sin too, and he paid for it, and he will forgive, and he will send his spirit, 
into your life to bring to life the transformation that will from this day forward make you more and more like him. This reality is the offer of the gospel that we hold out and hold up every single day as believers. Because this is the only place in all of life and all of the universe where mercy and justice perfectly meet.